Well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I think this has been a very practical book for us to go through. It seems that each week we hit a topic that the Lord directs us to as we just go through each verse, and it's the exact, at least from, in my mind, what the Lord has for us. And the same thing has happened again today. We are speaking on baptism, and I had someone come to me and say, hey, I need to be baptized. So we're actually having a baptism on December 12th, and so that's exciting. And also just, of course, we're dealing with suffering, and we're studying how the church can glorify God by being like Jesus while we suffer, and um, around our country and around our world, we see the church suffering, and in other countries, more than in the United States, we're not suffering to the same degree as some of the persecuted countries are. But I was reading an article in ChristianPost.com that reported the Barna Research Institute came into the study, and they predicted within the next 16 to 18 months that one in five churches in the U.S. would close. They said just because of the shutdowns and the effect it's having. I think some, sometimes in our context right here, we're, we're kind of back to normal, and so we don't really experience that. But honestly, if you talk to other pastors and churches around the country, I mean, even in places, actually, I think in California, maybe there's actually been in some churches a resurgence of attendance for some uh, churches. Honestly, in some places that where there's more quote-unquote Christians, it's actually the attendance is a lot lower. Um, and I don't know why necessarily that is. I have some thoughts on that. But there's definitely an impact on our country and in our churches because of what's happening, and many pastors, many churches are finding themselves in situations where they don't know what the future is going to look like for them, and, and it's possible many churches will close down. Now, first of all, let me say some of them should close down because they don't preach the gospel, okay? So we would hope they would preach the gospel, get a pastor in there that preaches the gospel, and if not, close down. But for those that are gospel-preaching churches and they're suffering, how should they respond? How should we respond as a church when we face difficulty, whether it be Christian persecution or just own, our own suffering that takes place because we live in a sin-cursed world? Well, we look back in chapter 3, verse 15, and it taught us there that we are to set apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. And he says in verse 14, he says, Don't fear don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. But what? But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as the Lord. So instead of fearing suffering, instead of fearing the future and the trouble that can come, we're to recognize that Jesus is the Lord. And we're to set him as the Lord of our own hearts. So we're to have him control our hearts, control our inner person by his Holy Spirit. And we're to recognize he's the one that's ruling over everything anyways. So what happens in verses 18 through 22 here is Peter wants to really support and strengthen our faith in Christ's lordship. So he presents really the lordship of Jesus Christ, the victory that Christ won for us. And so we saw last week that Jesus is the victor and he saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. And this is what he's, I think, the main point of this text here, uh, verses 18 through 22, is that Jesus is the victor. And so he goes through and he says, listen, Jesus gained the victory in verse 18. Then verses 19 and 20, Jesus proclaims the victory through his prophets, Noah, through preachers. And then in verse 21, we're going to see this morning that he symbolizes the victory. That's through baptism. 
And then we're also going to see that Jesus rules from victory as he sits on the right hand of God the Father. So look down with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look, or chapter 3, I'm sorry, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. Would you stand as I read the word of God? You can follow along. If you're able to stand, stand. If you're not able to, that's okay. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, this is the reading of the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. What a blessing it is from you, Lord, to be able to hold in our hands the word of God. And it is our heart's desire that we follow you, obey your will, your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray during this time you will speak to us through the word, which you promise you will do if we truly discern and understand and teach what your word says. And so I pray the Holy Spirit work powerfully during this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the 18th century, there was an Anglican preacher from England that came over. His name was George Whitfield, and he preached the gospel in the fields of America. People came from all over and heard him preach, and thousands of people came to faith in Christ. Many of those individuals, they claimed to be Christians before this. They had gone to churches like the Episcopalian Church, which is actually a uh, the American form of the Anglican Church. Also, some of them went to the Congregational Church, which was kind of an offshoot of the Episcopalian Church. Many of them had gone to those churches all growing up. They had been baptized, or they would have been, you might want to say it this way, they were sprinkled or poured on as a baby. And they believed that, brought them into the covenant of God, therefore they were going to be in the kingdom of God, they were going to go to heaven. And, but when they heard George Whitfield preach the gospel, they recognized that they were going the wrong way. They were trusting themselves. They were following their sin. And they had never repented and turned to faith in Jesus Christ. And so thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And there was these new converts then filling up the churches in the 18th century there. And the question was, what are they to do to show that they've come to faith in Christ? Like, how can they display that for everyone to say, listen, I wasn't a Christian before, even though I claimed to be, but now I, I'm truly a convert. I've truly repented and turned to Christ. And the answer from many, particularly the Baptists, were be baptized. In fact, for the Baptists, they believed, go, they went back to the scripture and they followed the New Testament pattern, which was believer's baptism. That was when a person gets saved, they get dunked under the water and brought back up, which is a testimony that they have trusted in Jesus Christ. 
And so many of those people actually began to get baptized and then started going to churches that taught that as well. In fact, so much so that George Whitfield lamented, saying that he regretted that many of the chickens that had hatched with new life had become ducks. In other words, they weren't Anglicans or Congregationalists or Episcopalians anymore. They all became Baptists or some sort of Baptist. They believed in that. One of the notable people who was saved and baptized during this time was William Carey, who became a Baptist missionary to India. He influenced another Congregationalist missionary named Adoniram Judson, who on his way over to Burma or on his way over to India, then to Burma, he studied the Bible, came to the conviction the Bible taught uh, in believer's baptism, and then he was baptized by William Carey in India there. And so what these men and really thousands of those converts discovered was the Bible clearly teaches that those who repent and believe in Christ are to picture their faith in Christ, in Christ's victory through baptism. And so what we're studying here this morning is that Jesus Christ symbolizes his victory and his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And baptism really is a personal testimony that a person has identified with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so for the church, this is a, a very important picture, a very important symbol, but I would say even especially for the suffering person, the suffering church. And why is that? Because this is a, a visual picture of the victory of Christ, that Christ saves and vindicates those who trust him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember those old pop-up books you had when you were a kid? I don't even know if they have those anymore. But you remember that you open the books up, and it's like maybe it's Alice in Wonderland, and it, you open it up, and poof, you know, there comes the tree and the hole and the rabbit and all that. Remember that? And it was like a, a visual picture of the story that you could read of Alice in Wonderland. And, you know, the Bible has these different pictures that it has us uh, present. In the Old Testament, that was like the tabernacle. If you walk through the tabernacle, you're basically walking through a, a picture book of what, Jesus, or what God was doing um, for Israel and what God had promised to do. In, in the New Testament, we kind of have a, a picture book in a sense, and that is uh, things like baptism. Baptism is like a picture book that like, we get to participate in. We kind of literally pop up, right, and reveal what Christ has done for us. It's, it's a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So in verse 21, we see this idea that Jesus wants us to symbolize his victory through baptism. In order to understand verse 21, you've got to go back to verse 20. So let's read verse 20 and think about this. So look down at verse 20. It says, they, remember those were those who were alive during the flood, but rejected the Lord, and therefore they are now spirits in, in hell, because they did not, uh, they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism corresponds to them. So Noah and his family were saved through the water. And then verse 21, Peter teaches that the account of Noah is an illustration of how God saves us. So in other words, he's saying, listen, there's a, there's a picture of Noah and how God saved him. And that helps us to understand the picture of baptism and how God saves us. So we've got to remember the account of Noah. When you think of the account of Noah, he wants us to think of, of what Christ has done for us. So remember Genesis chapter 6, we reviewed this last week, but God sent judgment upon the earth. Right? And it was the form of rain. 
And what did the rain bring and the, the water from underneath? What did it bring? It brought a flood, which brought death. So God sent judgment. It was really a massive flood of water that brought death upon every person. And why did he bring that? Because every person on the face of the earth had sinned against God and rejected him, and they were following their own hearts. So this judgment was to fall on every person. So for 120 years, God waited patiently for these people to repent. They did not. And then after 120 years, God sent this, this water, this judgment upon them. Now, the question is, did that judgment fall upon just those people, or did it also fall upon Noah and his family? What do you think? It's kind of a trick question. Did it just fall on the people outside the ark? Did it fall on Noah and his family? Well, it fell on everyone. That included Noah and his family. In other words, every person experienced the water judgment from God, but the difference for Noah was what? The judgment fell upon the ark and not upon them. In other words, they were safe inside the ark. The judgment hit the ark, and it didn't hit hit them because they were protected by God. And hopefully you can see the illustration here. Like the judgment of death by water was to fall on every person in Noah's day, the judgment of death falls upon every one of us. Every one of us will have the wrath of God poured out upon us because of our sin. Noah and his family, they trusted God, and they were saved by being safe in the ark. And those of us who trust in Jesus Christ are safe in him. And quite literally, the wrath of God, the judgment for sin, falls upon Jesus. It hits Jesus on the cross instead of hitting us because we believe in him. And like Noah and his family went from an old life to the ark to a new life, we go from an old life, we're saved, and we walk out in newness of life. And so what he wants us to do is, is think of these accounts, this, this account of Noah, and think of the illustration of baptism. And so look in verse 20. He says, these eight, the end of verse 20, these eight persons were brought safely through water. Now, when you see water, what you should think of is judgment, right? That was the judgment upon the earth. So they were brought through judgment, but they didn't experience judgment because they were safe in the ark. And then baptism corresponds to this. To this. So the, the picture of that water in baptism is, is judgment, right? And so think about what is baptism. In fact, I put a definition up here. It's kind of a long one. If you want to write it down, you can. I'll put it up here a couple times. What is baptism? Baptism, water baptism, I should say. Water baptism is an external demonstration that symbolizes your inner faith that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has been applied to you. It's Uh, an external demonstration that symbolizes your faith that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has been applied to you. And during the Sunday class hour, I'm going to talk more about baptism and and how it's used in the New Testament and different types of baptism. But first of all, notice it's an external demonstration that symbolizes something. The word baptism, the verb, baptizo, the Greek verb, actually literally means to immerse or to put under. Every baptism you see in the New Testament is someone being dunked underwater. So the idea that you pour it on someone or you sprinkle something on someone, that's not found in the New Testament. So baptism literally means to immerse. It's actually a transliteration of the Greek word, the word baptism is. And so the, the picture of baptism is that 
it's a, if it's a pastor baptizing someone, the pastor is burying that person. So imagine me up there in a couple weeks baptizing this person that's going to come, maybe a couple other people. I'm, it's, it's the picture I'm actually putting them under the water, under the judgment, right? And they are dying. And if I don't bring them back up, guess what? They will die. Okay, no. I don't think that's ever happened before. Hope not. I actually saw a video once where this pastor was in, a, he's in this metal uh, tub, and he was trying to baptize someone, and he slipped, and he fell on top of the woman. So, yeah, that, that could have been tragic in that situation. But that's, that's the picture, is that that person is going under the water, they're dying, if in some sense, but it's more than that. It's a testimony that they deserve to die, but that Jesus died for them. In fact, look at these texts of Scripture up here, and just... I'm just taking the first part of these verses. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So we deserve to die. We deserve to go under the judgment of water for our sin. But we believe Jesus actually went under the judgment of, of death and the cross for our sin. Verse, verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in death, so there you go, the idea that we've been united with him in death, and in Colossians 2, 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism. And so it's this idea that we believe that we deserve to die. We deserve to face the judgment of death. And that's in soul, that's in body. But Jesus died in our place. In fact, look back in verse 18. Again, remember, Jesus died in our place. He gained the victory for us. In verse 18, Christ suffered once for Sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. So water baptism is this external demonstration that symbolizes your faith in Christ, death, his burial, and then also in his resurrection, in his resurrection. And so you look down and or look back in verse 18, the very end, he says, put to death in the flesh, but what? But made alive by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, coming out of the water represents that Jesus Christ's resurrection gives us new life. I think I put this verse up there. There it is, Romans 6, 4, and 5. So let's finish off these verses. We're buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he, he resurrects our souls. And then look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in this death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what was his resurrection like? He got a brand new body, right? So he resurrects our souls now, and there'll be a day when he resurrects our body. And so what we're doing in baptisms, we're actually demonstrating that we have trusted that Jesus has applied his death, his burial, and his resurrection to us. One of the most precious memories for Christians should be our baptism. Christians, do you remember the time when you came to faith in Christ and then the next time when you then were baptized and demonstrated that to the church that you had trusted in Jesus Christ? It's a precious memory we should all have. It's our time to testify what Christ has done for us. Again, like I said, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a person be baptized. And if you're a believer in here and you've never been baptized... Christ commands us to demonstrate to the church that we have trusted in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So I would encourage you to publicly 
follow the Lord in obedience in that way. And again, there's nothing, nothing mystical that happens up in those waters. Not like any kind of you know, Holy Spirit dust falls on you or anything like that. The, really, the only supernatural thing is that you're obeying Christ, right? And so, but it's you testifying to the church about what Christ has done for you. Now you look down in verse 21, and you're like, okay, Pastor Ben, I'm really wanting to get to this part here because I'm confused, right? Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, that's the account of Noah, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, many people read those first seven words, and they conclude that the act of putting someone in the water saves them. So if you're a Catholic, some people in the Catholic faith, they believe that if a baby is baptized, and usually, again, that's like sprinkling or pouring. Actually, I saw a couple weeks ago a video of a priest that was taking a squirt gun so they could be six feet apart, and he squirted him. Yeah, that's, well, that's weird. Let's put it that way. But some people believe since that happened to them at, as a baby, then therefore they're saved. And they'll go to a verse like this, say, oh, see, baptism, it saves you. Or some people believe, well, you, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but also you have to go into the water, and when you go into the water, then you're saved. Well, there's it's called baptismal regeneration, which we don't believe as a church. We don't, actually don't believe the Bible teaches that. We have very good reasons for that. First of all, most importantly, the Bible is clear. There is no ritual. There is no work that you can do to earn any favor with God. And that includes being dunked under some water. Okay? So, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, that's God's kindness, his work, you have been saved through faith. So it's activated through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's got to be included stepping in water and being dunked under, right? It's a gift of God, not a result of works, speaking of your works, so that no one may boast. So there's no work, baptism, or ritual that can save us, only the work of Christ that is activated by faith in him. So the Bible over and over teaches that, that that's the way we come to faith in Christ, not through a ritual like baptism. And then the second reason is this verse actually doesn't teach that. In fact, if you keep reading the verse, it clarifies actually what the Bible teaches. And Peter actually refutes the idea of the ceremony of baptism can save. So look at verse 21 and think about the rest of the text of Scripture. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, he's teaching what saves is not the external physical ritual. Being dipped into the water and getting your body clean does nothing for your soul. So in what way does baptism save? Well, baptism is, again, an external testimony of faith in Christ's resurrection. So what saves us? Well, look at the very end of that verse. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christ's resurrection, his death and his resurrection, his resurrection is the, the work that gives us resurrection in our souls, that saves our souls. Our faith is how that work is applied to our souls, and faith is demonstrated in baptism. Did you get that? So Christ's resurrection is the work that saves us, so he did the work. Our faith in that work is applied to our souls when we believe and our faith is demonstrated in baptism. So now look back at the verse and let's look at this. So he says, not as the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not this ritual, but as an appeal to God 
for a good conscience. There's faith right there through faith in what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what actually saves your soul from judgment is Christ's death and resurrection, and it's applied to our souls by faith. Some of us, uh, some of you maybe have um, heard Billy Graham preach when he was alive. Maybe you saw him on TV, or maybe you saw him in person. He would do something that would be an invitation. And there's churches that have done that. I grew up in a church that they did invitations pretty much every week. And the idea of an invitation, especially if you're preaching the gospel, is that you, and especially for, for Billy Graham, is that he would give an opportunity for people to come forward who wanted to place their faith in Christ and make a profession in Christ. And of course, there were counselors, so they could talk to him. But the idea was he would call people forward for an invitation to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, did stepping out, and you know, if you're in a stadium and they, people walk down, when they stepped down, did that save them? Did the invitation save them when they walked out and they stepped in the grass? Was it all of a sudden like, oh, now I'm saved? Was that what Billy Graham, was that what the preachers of the 20th century were teaching, that, that an invitation like that saves you? No, no. Actually, what an invitation was was, a, was an external demonstration of your inner faith. Like you're coming down saying, I, in my heart, believe in Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection. I believe I want it to apply to me. I, I want to trust in Christ. And so I'm going to come forward to make that public. And really, the New Testament invitation is baptism. So, do you want to come to faith in Christ? Repent and believe and be baptized. And the idea is, listen, this is how you're going to show everyone and demonstrate to everyone that you have trusted in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So, this is God's way for us to tell people and proclaim what he's done for us. And so, we see this in the New Testament. Colossians 2, 12. Having been Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through what? Through faith. Faith in what? In your baptism. Is that what it says? No, it says through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, it's faith in the work of Jesus Christ, not faith in yourself, not faith in some water that's up there that probably is hard water anyways, hasn't really been chlorinated. You know what I mean? It's not like there's something magical about that, nothing great about it. It's just a way to picture that. We're actually, our faith is in Christ. So Christ's resurrection gives us the hope of our own resurrection. And so we have that, an appeal to God for a good conscience. And that's speaking there of the idea that our, our inner conscience has faith that Christ's resurrection will be applied to us and has been applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. When Dana and I were in college, we were in that phase one time in our dating. We were in that phase of, like, I like you, but we're not yet quite boyfriend-girlfriend. Remember that when you were dating? So you're, like, in that, you know, I'm going to ask you on a date, but nothing's really official. Not everyone in the campus knows this, right? And so we were in that stage. And so I asked her to go to an artist series, a little concert with us. And, uh, and I wanted to express my affection for her, really symbolize my affection for her. Even though we weren't officially boyfriend and girlfriend, I liked her, and actually more than liked her. I really liked her. And so I wanted to show this. What do you think I did to show her that I really liked her? What do you think I gave her? Not a diamond ring. That would be a little over the top. Flowers. I gave her a dozen red roses. Was this our first date, wasn't it? I think it was. I'm pretty certain. I should have probably asked that first. But that was the first time I gave her roses, and it was a, it was a symbol. It was a symbol an external symbol of an internal affection I had for her. The roses didn't make me love her, right? It actually didn't 
It didn't make us boyfriend and girlfriend. It wasn't like I gave it to her. I'm like, jing, all of a sudden we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Like, there's nothing magical about it. It was a symbol of what was going on in my heart. And that's the same thing we have with baptism here. It's a symbol. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us in our hearts. Water baptism is an external demonstration that symbolizes your inner faith that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has been applied to you. And in many countries, especially those who are who where Christians experience severe persecution, the picture of baptism is, I think, much more significant to us. Again, it pictures the victory Christ has won for us. I read a story about a, a young man. This was this is an article that dates back to October 2020, so pretty recent. Uh, this boy's name is Gabriel. I don't think that's really his name. I think they gave it to him because he lives in Malaysia. Malaysia, in most of Malaysia, it's illegal to proselytize someone who is not um, a Christian, uh, someone who's a Muslim especially, especially the Malay Muslims, um, some of them by penalty of prison, some by penalty of death. And so this young man was given the gospel by someone. So his father um, is a Muslim. He has three, his, his father has three wives. One of them is presumably his, his mother. And, uh, and so they were very strict Muslims. But again, someone came and gave this young man the gospel. And he came to faith in Christ. Christ resurrected his soul. It was pretty awesome to think about over in that hard, dark country. And after he heard the gospel and accepted Christ, what do you think he wanted to do? He wanted to be baptized. And, and in countries like this, you know, you might say, I'm following Christ. Frankly, um, they believe, Muslims believe that, that Jesus is a prophet. They don't believe in the same way we do, definitely. But, but the difference for him wasn't just saying he follows Christ. It's actually when he decided to be baptized. He called his father and he told his father that he was going to be baptized. And this ticked his father off. His father rejected him. But his, the son still went forward and went to church, and went to the waters of baptism, and was baptized. And this is what they reported he said that happened when he was there. He said there was so much joy on his face when he was baptized. His eyes sparkled. And when they asked him if he wanted to publicly confirm his faith in Christ, he shouted, yes, yes. And that right there really is what baptism is right there, is declaring your faith in Christ, that he has won the victory for us. Then our last point is that Jesus rules from victory. He rules from victory. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Remember, Peter, Peter wants us to to encourage, he wants to encourage those suffering churches to remember that Jesus is the victor, that Jesus is the victor, and he saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. And so what he does in verse 22 is he, he sets Jesus up as the Lord. He recognizes that he rules from victory. Now, what's the difference between ruling from victory and in ruling for victory? Well, in verse 18, he ruled, he, he, he uh, gained the victory, right? But there's a difference between ruling from victory. In fact, let me ruin a story for you. That's the story of Rudy. How many of you know the story of Rudy? There's like a movie about it, right? And it's the, I grew up in Indiana, so in Indiana pretty much everybody knows the story of Rudy. Even as a good little Baptist boy, I, I knew about this Catholic kid. 
Rudy was an unlikely football player at Notre Dame. So there's a movie, there's stories about him, and it's a true story of this guy who was too short really to play football. He was academically, he was dyslexic, so he struggled with some academics. Um, and so he was academically not really able to do it. Financially, he wasn't able to be in Notre Dame. But eventually, it all came together. Someone, someone helped him get his academics up, and, and physically, he was still kind of small. But they let him on the team anyways, basically because he had a lot of spirit, right? And they, he really loved Notre Dame, so they put him on the team. And then it was like the last home game of the year, and they were playing, uh, I think it was Georgetown. Let me see here. It was Georgetown, yeah, they are playing, was it Georgetown or Georgia Tech? Georgia Tech, that's right, Georgia Tech. They are playing Georgia Tech, and the score was 24-3, to and finally they let Rudy in. He tackled, you know, the quarterback. It was a great, everyone cheered, and the game ended. They put him on his shoulders. They exited out with him, you know, and supposedly the only time, except maybe one other time in recent history, that a football player was carried on the shoulders of the players out of the stadium. Okay, so that's the big story. Very exciting. And, but actually, think about it this way. The game was pretty much already over, right? I mean, the score was 24 to 3. Like, Rudy could, could go on the field. He could do anything. The guy's not going to lose the game for them, right? And the coach only put him in the game because he knew they already won. I mean, the, the time hadn't run out yet. There's only a couple of seconds left in the clock. But, I mean, 21 to 3, or 24 to 3, how are you going to lose the game? So that's why he put the short little kid in there, you know, well, college student in there. And, like, in other words, he was ruling, or he was coaching, you could say it this way, he was coaching from victory. He already knew he won the victory, right? The coach did. In fact, Rudy went in there. He had nothing to lose. I mean, how bad could he mess it up, right? And so, in some sense, he was playing from victory. And the point is this, is that, that they already had pretty much the victory, right? The time just had to run out. Christ has already won the victory for us. So he rules from victory. And so the Bible says in verse 22, the Bible says in verse 22 that he has ascended into heaven and that the ascension to heaven is seen there where he says has gone into heaven and then he's sitting at the right hand of the Father there. The expression sitting at the right hand shows that Jesus sits in an equal position to his Father. So you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal in their personhood. There's one God, three persons. So he sits as co-equal with God the Father, but he is the primary, Jesus is the primary agent that works on behalf of the Father. That's the idea of the right hand of the Father. I don't know if you should think about it literally, like the right hand and Jesus is right there. It's kind of like he's the main one up there working. Jesus is the one that's the Lord. He's orchestrating everything. In fact, think about it. This way, Pastor Roger just had surgery on his right hand, and that's his dominant hand, right? Is that your dominant hand? Okay. So it's probably not a hand he's going to be using very much in the next couple weeks here, right? Because that's the idea. Your, your right hand is your dominant hand. So Jesus is the one who is working as Lord from heaven. He's governing the affairs of men, and he's doing so based upon his victorious work of atonement on the Christ, on the cross, on the cross. I think about this past week, and maybe you had times where you thought to yourself, what's Jesus doing right now, right? Maybe you thought about your own life, some of the difficulties. Maybe you're a mom, and you're stressed out at home. Or maybe you're at work, and you feel that everyone's coming against you. Or maybe you just think about what's going on in our government, and you think, why is all this stuff happening? You might wonder, where is Jesus at? Like, what's he doing, you know? Well, here he tells us what he's doing. He's ruling as the Lord over all things. He's at the right hand of the Father. And you might say, well, what does that look like? (laughs) 
Has anyone wondered that? What does that look like? Well, let me just give you a brief overview of what that looks like. John 16, 7. This is what Jesus said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And where is that? To die, be buried, and resurrected, and then go to his Father in heaven, right? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, in other words, if I go to the right hand of my Father and I've ruled from heaven, I will send him to you. So it was necessary for Jesus to die, be resurrected, and then ascend to heaven. Why? So he could send the Holy Spirit to do a work amongst us. In fact, Jesus said that the work of the Holy Spirit will actually be greater than his work on earth. Remember that in John 14, 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I'm going to the Father. Now, don't miss that last part. What does it mean to go to the Father for Jesus? It's to sit as the Lord to rule over the affairs of men. So greater works will Jesus do when he rules from heaven at the Father's right hand because he's going to the Father. Of course, this is, again, a reference to his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then what's amazing is to think about the next verse in John 14, 13 that says, so whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, so Jesus rules as Lord. He works on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And everything Jesus is doing is for the glory of the Father. So he says, I have all authority, so ask in my name. Well, what is that talking about, ask in my name? What is that? That's praying, right? He's saying, pray. What? So pray to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm interceding for you, and then I will turn back around and work through the power of the Holy Spirit within the church, within the world. So we're to pray to the Father, trust that Jesus is interceding, and that he will turn around and answer those prayers through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think what I want you to see is when you see Jesus ruling at the right hand of the Father, when you see that in the scriptures, what you should see is Jesus is ruling and he's working through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to pray to the Father so that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit's here, but he'll activate the Holy Spirit's work in our life so he can powerfully work. In fact, when you see scriptures like this, Hebrews 14, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. He's passed through the heavens. He's ascended, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Remember, our confession is, is something that we confess at our baptism. And in verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near, or pray, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace, to help in time of need. So Jesus Christ, again, he's at the Father's right hand. He is the Lord of all. He's at work in our world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, draw near to the throne of grace. Pray to the Father. I'm there interceding. And when you pray to the Father, I will listen to your prayers and I will send grace through the Holy Spirit to help you, to help you. So, how does this apply to our life? Because, you know, you think about all the theological words like that. What does this actually mean for us? Well, maybe you're, maybe you're at home. Maybe you're a mom. Okay, let's go with moms. Maybe you're overwhelmed. You know, school's overwhelming for you. 
Kids are at home during this pandemic. You can't go anywhere. Well, let's say, let's say this. During this shutdown. And you, kid, you can't go anywhere. You sh- feel stressed. Maybe there's some bad things happening in your life. Maybe you're wondering, where is Jesus? I don't have the peace that I want to have. Where's the hope that I should feel? So where is Jesus? What is he doing? Where is his peace? Well, he is ruling at the Father's right hand. And listen, if you're a Christian, he's given you his Holy Spirit. So he's at work in your life. And he has all authority to do whatever he wants to do. So what's the problem? Like, what's the disconnect between what's going on with the heavenly work and, the earth, and his earthly work in my life? Well, first, I think maybe the problem is maybe, maybe you're not recognizing the lordship of Christ, that he actually is the Lord. And second, maybe you're not praying to him in faith. Maybe you're not talking to him in faith. In other words, maybe you're not recognizing that, that he is interceding with the Father and he will work on our behalf. And the point of praying is for, to ask him, Lord, work for us. Answer us. Maybe you're a person, again, like I said earlier, you're at work, maybe you're beat down, you feel like people are coming against you, you feel alone, you feel hopeless, and you again wonder, where, where's Jesus at right now? What's he doing? Well, recognize that he is the Lord. He's at work through his spirit. Through his spirit. And he wants to hear from us. He wants us to pray. He wants us to submit to his lordship, petition his father to work on our behalf. And you might say, well, I don't feel like anything's happening. Well, look at verse 22 and recognize something. Jesus can do anything that he wants to do. What does he say in verse 22? He says, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This represents the most powerful beings in the existence of the world besides God and his own holy angels. These are demonic spirits, Satan himself, but they're defeated. Now, they act like they're not defeated. Sometimes we, we act like they're not defeated. How do we act like they're not defeated? Oh, we don't even pray. <laughs> we don't even trust God. But Satan is not the victor. God, Jesus Christ, is the victor. There is, though, a cosmic war taking place in our world, right? We can look around and we can say, we can look at the government and we can go, man, who's winning? We can look at homes. We can see homes falling apart. I heard about this pastor this past week who, during the pandemic, had an adulterous affair. And you go, what? We we can look at um, different arenas in this world and see where Satan seems to be the victor. But we know the reality is is that Jesus Christ is the one who gained the victory and he, he rules from victory. So what are we to do? We're to walk by faith and act like he's gained the victory. And it's not like a pretending kind of thing. It's the reality. He's ruling right now. So what does it look like for us? We go to him in confidence. We pray to him as the one who will powerfully work by his Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the victor. He's the victor. And he saves and he vindicates those who endure by faith. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, keep enduring. Keep trusting him. Keep praying to him. We picture victory 
the victory of Christ with baptism, and we trust that Jesus is ruling from victory right now at the Father's right hand. Would you pray with me? As we conclude, I want to invite anyone in here that doesn't know Christ, maybe you are struggling with your own faith, wondering if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. We would love to talk to you more about that, be able to walk through the gospel with you. If you're at a place where you say, I I know I'm not a believer and I need Christ, would you turn to him in faith this morning? And for us believers, let's go to him in prayer right now. Let's recognize who Jesus is. He is the Lord. And let's submit to him in our heart as the Lord. Let me just give you a time to do that in your heart to the Lord. Cry out to him. Pray to him. Pray to him as who he truly is. And as the Lord who offers grace. Father, I'm so thankful that I can pray to you right now with full confidence that no sin of mine or anyone in here that's in Christ can separate us. No demonic spirit can distance us from you. That you hear us and you answer us and you work for the glory of God of your name. So we can pray in confidence, asking God, give us grace, give us help. And I think probably the first step for us as believers is give us faith that you truly are Lord. Help us to believe your word. Your word says it. We must believe it. And I pray that then, Lord, we will act accordingly. Help us to continue to bring our troubles to bring our cares to you, to cast them upon you, to bring your word to you and trust in your promises for us and to ask Holy Spirit that you would work in our church, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.